For those of you that are utilizing our children's ministry, we, we run that through first grade. You are most welcome to take your children back there now. For those of you whose children are staying in the service with us, uh, your children are most welcome here. We, we do not mind the noise. And again, there's a, a, a companion bulletin worship guide that they can use to go along uh, in the service with us. Uh, usually during this time, we kind of read uh, uh, just a selection briefly from our Confession of Faith, the uh, 1689 London Confession of Faith, but this morning, the church calendar, and as a Baptist, we don't feel any need to pay attention to the, the church calendar all, all the time, but the, um, the, this Sunday would be considered Trinity Sunday, and I, and I thought it would be helpful for us to just consider one of the creeds that we confess as, as members of Deer Park Fellowship, along with uh, the Christian church throughout the centuries, that is a, a, a good, uh, crisp, um, classical understanding, biblical understanding of our triune God. And so this is the Nicene Creed, and I just want to read it to you this morning. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man." And was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped, and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe one holy Catholic, right, and we know that to be universal, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. If you have your Bibles with me, turn to the chapter 6, the Gospel of Mark. We are going to conclude actually conclude chapter 6 this morning. We've been considering it and considering the ministry of, of Christ, and, and, and we've been looking at, right, this kind of mini-commission, if you will, this trial commission that he had sent his apostles out on. They came back, reported. Last week, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000, and this morning, we're looking at uh, probably uh, what's a, a more common uh, miracle known by those in the church and even probably those outside the church as well, Jesus walking on the water. And I'm going to read starting at verse 45 and then through to verse 56 and pray, and then we'll begin to just consider by God's grace this text together. And so Matt, Mark chapter 6, starting with verse 45 on down to verse 56, the word of the Lord says this, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he, while he sent the multitude away. 
And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer. It's I. Do not be afraid. Verse 51. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and they marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Verse 30, verse 53. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they had came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran through the whole surrounding region and began to carry about, carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word inspired and preserved. God, help us again this morning, this Lord's Day, to see and consider it with eyes of faith. We ask that your Holy Spirit would help us, Lord. And God, we pray that as a result of having spent time in your word this morning, God, that we would be in awe of you. We would be driven to deeper worship that we would long to be with you, that we would be conformed as well more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. So, <clears throat> as I said just a moment ago, this is, uh, th- this is the, the miracle that, that followed the miracle of the, the feeding of the 5,000 that we saw last week. In fact, our text opens up with that word, immediately, right? It gives us insight a little bit into the timeline of this historic event. And, and these two miracles, the, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on top of the water, they really are probably the, the, the two better known miracles uh, of Jesus. Now, what, what most people recall when they think about Jesus walking on the top of the water is the account in which Peter comes out of the boat and he too right, walks on top of the water. And then he takes his eyes off of Christ and he sinks and then Christ brings him back up. He's rescued by Christ. But you'll notice that, that that's missing uh, from Mark's account. In fact, that, that is recorded by Matthew only. And, and because we're preaching Mark's gospel, that's uh, a part of the this historic event that I'm, I'm going to neglect. But our text, it, it opens up with Jesus making his apostles, particularly his apostles, uh, get into the boat without him, right? To, to, to go to the other side, to go to 
Bethsaida. And that phrase, he made his disciples or apostles, and particularly that word that's, that's translated into the English word made, it indicates that Christ had to compel, that he had to sternly encourage, if you will, the apostles to get into the boat and begin to set sail. Jesus stays behind, right? He stays behind to dismiss the, 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 the multitude, the, the, the people that had gathered to, to hear him teach for hours on end, the people that gathered and were fed by him with the fishes and the loaves. Now, John's gospel, which includes this miracle, it indicates to us that, that after Jesus multiplied the fishes and the loaves, that the multitude, the crowd, wanted to make Jesus king. The, the apostle John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, puts it this way, quote, when the people saw the sign that he had done, Christ, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world, right? And people all throughout centuries, right, even now have their own idea of how this messianic kingdom should, should unfold, right? Perceiving then, Jesus perceiving, then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, maybe the apostles got swept up into this. And if you remember, as we've, as we've been journeying through Mark together, excuse me, as we've been journeying through Mark together, we've seen how good intentions in some situations sought unintentionally to interrupt the, the messianic work of Jesus, right? Just even think about the, think, think back to when we covered Jesus's own relatives, right? Who, who came to intervene. They, they thought that he had lost his mind and, and, and perhaps he was working himself too much and needed to rest, right? Those, we could even consider good intentions that were um, unintentionally seeking to thwart Christ's messianic plan. And here, Christ, perceiving the intention of the multitude to make him king, and again, perhaps the apostles getting swept up into that, right? he, he thwarts their plan. Right? He stays focused, and he continues about the business in his humanity accomplishing the will of the Father. So, if we're harmonizing John's account and, and Mark's account, Right? That could be one of the reasons that, that Jesus sends the apostles away so urgently and forcefully. And that could be also why he dismissed the crowd and then he goes up into the mountain, mountain to pray, right? to, to finally get away, something that we've seen he and the apostles seeking to do all throughout, particularly chapter, chapter 6. Now, the way that Mark has this account organized is that while Jesus is alone on the land, in the mountain, when he's finished praying, right, he, he looks up and he sees the disciples from where he's at. Mark recounts it like this, verse 48. And again, make sure as you're working through it to kind of have your Bibles open looking at the text with me. It says, then he, Jesus, saw them, right, the disciples, the apostles there, straining at rowing for the wind was against them. Now, the, the Greek word translated there is, is straining or translated as painfully in some of your translations, perhaps. It, it also means torture, torture. Right? The, the apostles here, they, they were in a bad way. Why, 
what they were experiencing on the boat on the Sea of Galilee, it was, it was torturous. It was torturous. They were experiencing great pains in an attempt to obey Jesus, okay? And, it, and it's not until around the fourth watch of the night, which is no earlier than 3 a.m., no later than 6 a.m., so somewhere in between there that that Jesus, he, he comes to them, right? And this means that the apostles, they've been out to sea for, for quite a while, for some time, and they're struggling. They're being tortured, if you will, by this great storm, right? No rest, no sleep, heavy winds, violent waves, constant rowing, yet little little progress. In fact, the storm took them off course from where they originally set out to go. And, and Jesus comes to them, and the way that Mark describes this account, it's very precise, okay? It's very precise. He describes it in such a way that it leaves no room for doubt regarding this miracle. In other words, he's clear in his recounting of, of this historical event. He says Jesus came to them walking on the sea, right? That's verse 48, literally walking on top of the water, right? The water, mind you, that was deep enough to sail, right? And to stick oars into row and because of the winds and the waves, the storm, right? Deep enough to terrify some experienced fishermen, right? Now, there have been scholars, post-enlightenment scholars that have sought to explain this away and, and, and frankly, to, to eliminate any miracle from Scripture, anything that could be classified as, as supernatural, right? The, these types of scholars, they're not, they're not comfortable with what they don't understand, right? Therefore, everything needs to be rationalized, right? Some theorize that the Sea of Galilee was shallow at this time, so it was like Jesus, just like He was walking on the water, but He wasn't really walking on the water. It was just shallow enough at this stage to do that. Others say that Jesus walked on a sandbar, right? And some say that the apostles were delirious just from the intensity of the situation. But that's not what Mark records for us here, is it? His phrasing is, it's purposeful. His phrasing is clear. Furthermore, Matthew and John's account support this being a miracle, support this being a walking on the top of the sea, especially Matthew's account, again, including Peter coming out of the boat, right? onto the water, sinking after taking his eyes off of Christ, and then Christ, again, rescuing him. Right? There, there is clear exegetical refutation of the, these novel, these young theories. We, as God's church, have no reason to be embarrassed about the miracles of Scripture. Right? In, in humility and in faith, we take this biblical account as historical, we take it as historical. In fact, is not this historical record of Jesus walking on the top of the water, isn't it a clear testament to his deity, right? to, 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 to his divinity, right? And shouldn't this be faith strengthening to you and me as God's people, right? Only God can walk on water, right? Only God can walk on water. Job chapter 9 verse 8, he alone, God alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Isaiah 43, 16, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and a path 
through the mighty waters. Now, I want to continue on this for just a few minutes because it, it's, it's, it's too significant for us to just gloss over. In fact, if we're looking at this text, again, with, with, with faith and humility, then the Holy Spirit will help us see Christ more clearly, to, to savor Christ, to behold Christ as our Lord and our God. So, so continue to look at the text with me because Mark adds this unique detail that's not included in Matthew or John, and, and it's so rich and edifying to be able to consider together. The details found at the tail end of verse 48. Quote, he meant to pass them by. He meant to pass them by. What does that mean exactly? Right, does that mean that Jesus was, he was trying to, to sneak past the disciples in their hour of need, right, in, in their agony? He was just trying to get by them unnoticed? That's not what it means. We already know that because he walked on water to come to them. That's what it says right before that little, in, the, in that same verse that precedes that little phrase there for us. Now, if we slow down and we think for a minute, we may begin to see that this is not unfamiliar language. And you know, we can't get into the mind of the author here who's dead and gone, Mark, but perhaps there is this connection that the divine author, right, who inspired Mark to pen these words, the Holy Spirit of God, I mean, there's something here that he's communicating that's essential for us. And I think that this is a theophany, theophany. Now, boys and girls, that word theophany, it means appearance of God, right, appearance of of God, and that's what I think that we see happen, ha- happening in in our text here, in in a clear way, the glory of God right, manifested in Jesus, who we know and confess to be truly God and truly man, right? And I think that the Old Testament can help us to see why this unique phrase that again Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is using you have your Bibles, just turn with me for a moment, Exodus chapter 33. I just want to read to you verses 17 to 23, and I'm going to take you another place as well. <clears throat> and this is the historical account of Moses asking the, the Lord to show him his glory. And so the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you've spoken, for you found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he, speaking of Moses, says, please show me your glory. Show me your glory. Then he, the Lord, said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here's a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock, so it shall be. And here's, again, similar language, while my glory passes by, that I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back, and my face shall not 
be seen. Or consider one more Old Testament passage with me for just a moment. You don't have to turn there, but you're most welcome to. First Corinthians or First Kings 19. Verses 9 to 12, it recounts the, if you're familiar with that section of Scripture, the exhaustion of Elijah, perhaps not unlike the exhaustion that the apostles were experiencing out on that stormy sea there. But it's the exhaustion he's facing after he kills the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. And we see that Elijah is on the run from from Jezebel, and he's now in a, again, he's in just this place of, of, of despair. And starting in verse 9, we see this. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant and tore down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then he said... All right, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. It seems to me that this passing by language... This passing by language is, is language that we should rightly connect to the glory of God, right? Coupling that with the Old Testament passages, even ascribing the walking on the water to something that God alone does. Again, anthropomorphic language there, but something that God alone does, it, it's a clear indicator that the divinity of Jesus is, is being emphasized and demonstrated to the apostles in the midst of the storm and to us, Deer Park Fellowship, 2,000 years later. So we worshipfully consider this passage of Scripture together. One theologian says it this way, quote, The glory of God bursting through the shroud of the humanity of Jesus was made manifest to the apostles. In the middle of their distress, they looked up and they saw the glory of God passing by, the glory of the Lord shining out of the Son of God. And how magnificent is that? It's glorious. But the disciples, they don't see that at first, right? And we'll talk about why that is in just a moment. But right, they think it to be a ghost, I think it to be a ghost. Actually, the word for ghost here is used only here and in Matthew recounting the same historical event. And that word means an appearance of a spirit, if you will. Right? The uniqueness of this word, the rarity of its use is significant only because, again, many in this boat were experienced fishermen. They weren't scared of the water. Right? They weren't superstitious. Right? The usage of this word speaks to... The, this being, in fact, a miracle that is recorded for us. But the disciples, they don't recognize initially that it's Jesus they see on top of the water. What they do see as he passes them by, it is frightening. It is frightening. But Jesus, he speaks to them. He calms them and perhaps says some words to them that, Maybe were the sweetest words they ever heard right, their whole lives. 
He says, be of good cheer. Or take heart, again, is what some of your translations say. He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. It's the second part of verse 50. And we could spend all day just on that phrase. But Christ, he, he looks at them. Right? He draws near to them. And he speaks. Take heart. Have courage. It's I. And that short phrase, it is I, it's significant because it's identical to the name that God discloses to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, right? I am what? Who I am. I am who I am. And we shouldn't be surprised by this, right? Not only does it harmonize well with what we're considering this morning, right, this miracle, but Jesus used, he uses I am statements elsewhere, right? John records Jesus as saying to the Jewish leaders, right? And it gets them all worked up as he says, Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. John 8, 58. One commentator says it this way, Thus Jesus not only walks in God's stead, but he also takes his name. He also takes his name. Right? Jesus is the self-sufficient God. Right? Our text this morning, <clears throat> it makes that abundantly clear. Doesn't that, doesn't that stir your soul to worship Him? Right? That should motivate us, compel us, draw us in to worship our Lord and our Savior. Right? I pray it does that. I pray that it's not something that you've grown callous to hearing. After Jesus steadies the apostles, right, <clears throat> he gets in the boat, the bad weather, it ceases, right? Christ demonstrating yet again his authority over creation. We've already seen him early in March speak to the elements and they obeyed. We considered that on Easter Sunday, didn't we? And the apostles in light of Christ doing this, in light of what they've observed in this miracle, Jesus walking on the water, on top of the water, Jesus identifying himself and encouraging, comforting the apostles, getting into the boat and the elements again obeying him. It says that the apostles were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and they marveled. Right? Matthew's account says that they began to worship Jesus, which is a good response. That's a good response, except the way it reads, especially here, here in Mark, right, this response, it came, from, came more from a place of, of, of surprise. Can you believe that Jesus can do that? Right, that? There seems to be a more immature response, one that you'd expect to you know, find in Perhaps someone on the, the verge of conversion or maybe a new convert, which in many ways they, they were that, right? But their response seems to even mimic that of the multitude in this way, right? Maybe they did, in fact, get swept up into trying to make Jesus king. But Christ's own apostles, they were limited at this stage in their understanding and in their internalizing what they were witnesses of. And Mark says this is because their hearts were hardened, right? We see that in verse 52. That's why that... That verse, it may seem out of place at first glance, but it's not as out of place as, as we may think it is. For they had not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. Right? They, were, they were surprised 
at Christ walking on the water because they didn't have eyes to even see the significance of the miracle of the fishes and the loaves. And this is the effect that sin has on us, isn't it? Right? It develops calluses that can only be penetrated by the Spirit and the Word. Right? And of course, we know as we pay attention to the flow of the New Testament that these apostles soften and they mature as they lay the foundation of the church. In our text this morning, it ends with the anchoring in a place called Gennesaret, right, where they kind of got blown off course to. Right? And there Jesus is recognized, news about his arrival, it spreads very quickly, and people come out from throughout that whole region bringing sick people, just hoping to touch the hem of Christ's garment to be made well, perhaps because they heard the testimony of the woman with the hemorrhage we considered a few weeks ago who suffered for 12 years, who got close enough just to touch Jesus. So, as you can see, there's a lot in our text this morning, and, and I pray that considering this passage more deeply, I pray it's edifying to you, but I want to, as we prayerfully just reflect, just a little bit more, I want to leave you with, with, with with just a couple of things. And kids, if you're, you're taking notes alongside of your parents, I've got some short things, short takeaways, short things for you to consider this morning. The first is this. Jesus is our deliverer. Jesus is our deliverer. Now, that seems simple <clears throat> and straightforward enough, but believer, it's inexhaustible for our finite minds, isn't it? Right? Consider the drastic change in the apostles from rowing in the boat in torment to marveling and worshiping Jesus. Right? And, and just as we noted last week that it's Christ alone who turns the wilderness into a place of rest, so the very presence of Jesus settles the wind and waves crashing against the apostles. And as he settles the, element, he give, the elements, he gives to these men rest and peace. He gives them rest and peace. If we enter into the story with our imaginations for just a moment, right after rowing and rowing for six, seven, eight hours, right, these guys had to begin to wonder if the torment would ever stop, right? And, and if it ended, how would it end? And then they encounter Jesus. They encounter Jesus, the one who has authority over that which he has made. Which is what? What is it that Christ has made? Everything. Everything visible, everything invisible, right? Jesus, he delivers these men. And they go from despair to worship. They go from despair to worship. And if we can take the storm... And Jesus calming it for a moment and, and think of it as a picture of our spiritual condition. Right? Augustine did this in his own reflection of, of this historical account. We should see and be in awe of the peace that Jesus has acquired for you and for me. For those of us that are Christians. Right? If left to ourselves, we're destined for an even more severe torment than that which the the apostles faced on that stormy night. And what is that torment? It's the wrath of God. It's the wrath of God. And what is the wrath of God? It's God's justice. 
executed, right? It's his righteous judgment over that which is wicked, that which is sinful, right? That which is not holy. And we must not forget that apart from Jesus, we are deserving of the wrath of God for all eternity. That's not just what we've inherited from the first Adam. That's what we've earned through our own transgressions as well. Yet God in Christ Jesus has delivered us, right? Jesus entered into the storm in this great, beautiful plan made in eternity past with the Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus, eternal God, He became a man and He stepped into our place. And we were, we were on a ship that was on a collision course, this storm, God's God's fierce wrath, the storm of His fierce wrath. And Jesus, He stepped into that. He stepped in our place. He received the Father's righteous wrath for our sin. That's what we see on the cross. That's what we see on the cross. Right? It's there that Jesus delivers us. God's wrath forever satisfied. That's the sufficiency of our Savior. He suffered once. For our sins, 1 Peter 3, 18. And we know He's acquired for us an eternal rest and eternal peace. And the proof of that, the proof of the acceptability of His sacrifice, right? The sufficiency of His sacrifice is an empty tomb. It's an empty tomb. So Jesus, He's our deliverer. We should consider that anew this morning together. And secondly, finally, obedience is not easy. I don't think any of us would dispute that, right? But obedience is not easy. Every one of us in this room, we know that experientially, if we're being honest. But consider the disciples again, right? They, they took great pains. They, they experienced a type of torment as they sought to obey the words of their master, And they would face situations that would be much more difficult than this as they would eventually experience persecution and martyrdom for the sake of proclaiming Christ crucified and risen from the dead. The the, the Christian faith, our faith, it's not abstract. It doesn't stay out in the ether. It's earthy. We as Christians, from, from a place of being positionally right, right, justified before the Lord, are to labor in this world in light of who we are in Christ, and that is not easy. It's, it's our joy, but it's thorns and thistles. It's costly in at least two ways. The first, first way is this, and, and we talk about this regularly here when we gather, right? but <clears throat> being faithful in a society that is increasingly hostile to the exclusive claims of Christ and, 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 and the searching and moral clarity and nature of His Word, it requires God-centered courage. It requires God-centered courage, which one has when he or she fears God more than man. Right? In church family, I, I, I want to be honest with you this morning, increasingly... I, I see it as my job to, to help prepare you to fear our triune God in such a way that you're willing to, to suffer for Him. Right? 
to love him and to fear him in such a way that you're willing to suffer for him, that you're willing to allow your family to suffer for him. Because as we look around, again, just at the moral decay of our society, Christianity, biblical Christianity is targeted, will be targeted. And why is this? Because light dispels darkness, right? And and darkness hates that. Light dispels darkness and darkness hates that. But we must remember the words of Jesus in the midst of increasing conflict in our lives. John 16, 33, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. But if we back this up, right, and this is the second thing, think of the toil the struggle with our own remaining corruptions, right? the, the temptations we face combined with our own sinful bent. It can be as torturous as the waves and the wind on the stormy night on the Sea of Galilee. Right? If we were to do a survey just of the New Testament passages as it relates to the Christian struggle to fight sin, we would see that it harmonizes well with our experience. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 to 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall have no dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. Or consider Colossians Chapter 3, verses 5 to 11, the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Colossae, therefore put to death your members which are on earth. And he goes to, begins to spell that out for us. Fornication, uncleanness, and passion, and evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've put off the old man with his deeds and you've put on the new man who's renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Or consider Hebrews 12, 3 and 4. It says, For consider him, speaking of Christ, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And he goes on and he says, You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. You'll notice the violence required as we seek to obey Christ. Right? The fact that obedience was even made possible right through our salvation, that required violence. But we see phrases, put to death your earthly members. Right? Put it to death. Put it to death how? Right? See that those sins were buried with Christ, and just as he bodily and eternally raised from the dead and left them behind in the empty tomb, so should we spiritually leave them behind as we walk 
in our union with our resurrected and glorified Savior. So put them to death. Put them to death. See that they were crucified. See that they've been put away and leave them there. Don't go back to the tomb. Don't try to resurrect them. And know that as you walk in humble obedience, by God's strength, things seemingly get harder. They seemingly get harder. If we observe the obedience of Jesus, again, in his humanity, right, in his first advent, we see the moment leading up to his arrest in this faux trial that, go, that, that then leads to his flogging and then leads to his execution. We see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Mark records it like this in chapter 14, verses 34 to 36. He said to them, Jesus, to some of the apostles there, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And Luke records that his very sweat during his prayer was like drops of blood. Yet Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, ignoring its shame. All right, and he's seated now at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Brothers and sisters, we, we have not obeyed to the point where our sweat, our agony is like drops of blood. And the preacher to the Hebrews says to consider him who endured, right? Christ who endured hostility from sinners so that you may not grow discouraged in your fight with your personal sin. We have not yet resisted temptation enough. How do we know? Again, we've never shed drops of blood in striving against it. So we look to Christ, both in our enduring the hostilities of this world and in our striving against our own particular sins, knowing that we've been freed from them. The Apostle Paul in the Romans passage I read to you a moment ago, he gives a promise in verse 14 of Romans 6. And again, writing under the influence of the Spirit of God, Paul said, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. What is that if not a promise? All right, what is that if not a promise? Sin shall have no dominion over you because of Jesus. Right, praise be to God. Obedience is hard. Jesus is our deliverer. He's transferred us out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. To the praise of his glorious grace, Ephesians 1, 6. So that we might delight in him. Psalm 37, verse 4. And promote his lordship to every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? God, we thank you for this time that we've had together in your word. God, we thank you just how clear your scripture is about the divinity of Christ, Lord, who came to make us right. And so, Lord, help us to just marvel at that, God. Help us to remember that in our head and our heart. Help it, that truth to sink in so deep that it, it's motivating to us in the comings and goings of our lives.
And so we thank you for your word. Thank you for this time we've had together in it. In Jesus' name, amen.